Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. The way we die is almost never up to us, but some people who are terminally ill wish it was. Back in May of 2022, we first met Linda Shannon Bluestein. She was in palliative care after being treated for terminal ovarian and fallopian tube cancer. She was a guest on our show about medical aid in dying, or MAID. Only 10 states, plus the District of Columbia, allow people to end their lives this way. And there are very specific criteria for people who are eligible, including having a terminal illness with a prognosis of six months or less to live, and being capable of making their own health care decisions. In Connecticut, MAID isn't legal. Frustrated by the lack of legislative movement here, Linda successfully sued Vermont so that out-of-state residents could take advantage of its law. In 2023, Vermont became the first state to remove the residency requirement. So on January 3rd, 2024, Linda and her family left their home in Bridgeport and settled into a home in Concord. The next day, surrounded by loved ones, she took the cocktail of drugs that would end her life. And at 9.15 a.m., Linda died peacefully. Today, you'll listen back to my conversation with her from 2022, And then you'll hear more of her story as she began a wind phone project, where old rotary phones are installed in public places for people to use to feel as though they're connecting with loved ones who've died. And you'll hear remembrances from Linda's husband, Paul, and her son, Jacob. When we first connected, Linda told me what it felt like when she got her terminal diagnosis. It was like I I was standing at a time clock back in the days when I worked at J.C. Penney's, and I took my time card and I punched out and I said, I'm off the clock. From now on, everything is just my bonus days. Tell me about how you started considering medical aid in dying. First, my mother's death uh, in my arms, just days after she had completed yet a, a second course of chemotherapy, She couldn't have weighed more than 79, 80 pounds, wearing an adult diaper, curled up in the fetal position in a too large hospital bed, unable to participate, and having a hospitalized, medicalized death where, you know, I don't want to be on my third round of chemo where I'm looking as bad and feeling as awful. I want quality of life. And I wanted medical aid in dying. And I made a list of 10 things about what would be a a good death for me. And it's called my death plan. And every day I get up and I read this list. And all I do is glance at it to see if I've done everything that I want to do. At the top of the list is forgive everyone. I don't want to carry around anything with me that in the end matters not at all. So I, I thought, yeah. That was stupid for me to still hang on to that thing about this friend or in the end, it matters not at all. So sometimes I will look around and say, oh, I haven't forgiven so-and-so. They probably don't even know I'm carrying this, but I'm going to do that. 
And that, of course, what everyone tells you as you get older is get your affairs in orders, you know, wills, trust, financial stuff. Well, you know, that's pretty ordinary. And, and then number three is plan a good death. It's going to be at home. It's going to be with my dog, with my husband, with my kids, maybe my grandchildren. I don't want death to be a mystery to them because it's everybody's end. And this isn't a secret, something that we should be ashamed of. It's something we should celebrate as, as much as a birth. And we plan for births and we plan for weddings and we plan for all these other things. But how about planning for our final exit? And so I had some things in mind for my good death and where it's going to take place. And I'd like it to take place at my beautiful home here in St. Mary's by the sea. But if I have to move to Vermont to access medical aid in dying, that's going to mean a big, you know, seismic shift in my plans. I wanted to, I went to a conference at the Fairfield Library on death decluttering. And I thought, oh, how apropos, here I am dying and I can learn how to declutter. So I'm not quite done Marie Kondoing my life, but I see quite a few books in the background there. Yeah, 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 I need to. Don't even look at the file cabinets with all that paper that can go away. (laughs) But, you know, we do hang on to stuff. And then my 10th item on my good death list is just carpe diem. Every day that I have, if I'm feeling strong and I have energy, you know, get up, you know, get dressed, put on makeup. You know, I have hair now. I didn't have hair for so long. And, And do things that bring me satisfaction or a sense of completion or a sense of agency because my cancers aren't giving me a lot of agency over many aspects of life but certainly taking steps to make sure that at the very end I don't have to suffer and have my family members suffer my cancers already cause seismic shifts in the people who love me they have to realize you know mom grandma, wife, not going to be here as long as we had hoped or expected she would. I want to make that as light on their hearts as possible when the cancer comes back and when the suffering is too great. How, how will you know when the suffering is too great? I guess I don't know. Isn't that one of the mysteries? In states where medical aid in dying is legal, most people who access the cocktail for ending their lives end up never taking advantage of it. So, But if all I can do is wake up in the morning and dread another day, if I'm where my father was, please don't let me wake up. Or I've had a the privilege of being a friend to a woman I met in a cancer support group at uh, the Norma Freem Cancer Center three years ago, who, as she said, took flight on February 2nd of this year, when she by herself moved to Vermont, leaving her husband back in Fairfield, drove to Vermont, registered her car there, got a place to live, established residency, registered to vote, had all of her medical records sent, had to find new doctors, new hospice care, be admitted to hospice. And she wrote me every day. She wrote me on the days before she had decided to go to Vermont to access Act 39. 
And she said, Linda, um, I'm going to keep you in the loop because I'm going to go through this and I'm going to leave you a trail of breadcrumbs so you'll know how hard it was. And it was very hard. To do also while being sick. Well, in her third year of suffering from lung cancer with no energy left. So Kathy had to leave her home and do all of these things. And she wrote me every day. She said, well, I had to find a witness today to attest to the fact that they weren't related to me, didn't know me, but I seemed to be sound of mind and know what I was doing and they weren't going to benefit from my will. And she said, and then people in Vermont didn't want to sign it. They were afraid, you know, oh, somebody's going to find me. So she finally found a random person in a coffee shop who would sign her, be a witness. And then she went to a bookstore and she walked into the bookstore and broke down in tears because she was so tired and so frustrated. And the bookstore owner just put her arms around her and said, what's the matter? She said, would you be my witness? And they sat down and talked. So that was her second witness, but this was not easy. And then she had to find a place to live, somebody to take care of her. And she had to find that only one pharmacy in all of Vermont compounds and dispenses these drugs. So she said, Linda, this ain't easy, so start early. I took that seriously, and, and I was so happy when she wrote me in the morning of February 2nd. She said, hey, girlfriend, I'm taking flight this morning. My family's here, my son, my daughter, my husband. Bill's been taking care of her. This is the man that she had moved into his home. He was a, a hospice nurse. And so she said, um, goodbye. So I saw what a good death was. And I went to Kathy's memorial service, as many people did in Fairfield at the Pinfield Pavilion, and heard her son and her daughter, both adults, and her husband talk about how beautiful it was and how wonderful it was to see Kathy just say, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm not going to wake up and that's all I wanted. So when I get to the point where the suffering is so great that I say to my husband or I say to someone who's near me, I just don't want to wake up again. Please let me go to sleep and not wake up. That's the time when I will access those medications to make sure that happens. I'm curious to know what you think about the idea of what medical aid in dying may do to the human species on a grand scale. And of course, we have no idea if this becomes something that more and more people do. When you take the pain out of this human experience on that grand scale, what avoiding that kind of suffering will, will do to us? You know what I mean? Like what, in what ways that may change us culturally in that broader context? What do you think when I put that to you? I think it's wacko bananas. It's a personal choice. If you like suffering, go for it, you know? I have had two children, and believe me, I don't think I was deprived of any great experience because I had an epidural, my gosh. If that's going to be the, the central point of my life, am I going to be damned forever because I didn't suffer an extra, like, 10 hours? If people want to suffer, go for it. If I don't choose that as my path, what matter is it to you? And what societal consequences? Dead is dead, folks. 
you know, if it comes after a long period of suffering, is that better? What kind of value system is so crazy that we're saying you owe society more hours of suffering? Is it seven hours? Would that be enough? Or does it have to be 24 hours or maybe maybe a whole week of suffering would be good for society? The fact is, when I die, if I die, as I wish, here in my home, who's going to be affected by this? What is the state of Connecticut going to gain or lose, I'm dying anyhow, by the hours that I have chosen to remove because it was the right time for me? I will be the only one to know. My husband can't say, here, take this cocktail. It's my choice. If I wanted to end my life, and I don't. Let's, let's make a real clear distinction that I think is most important. This is not suicide. This isn't physician-assisted suicide, which I hate, a term that I despise. If I wanted to end my life, I could buy a gun tomorrow, right? No, no, this afternoon. It is the United States. I could probably find one. There are a number of ways that I could commit suicide. People who commit suicide don't want to go on living. I have a lot to live for. And I want to live it fully until I'm no longer able to participate in it. When my agency has been removed because of my cancer, then that's on me to make that decision. And I highly resent uh, the religious arguments that suffering is part of, you know, helping you get to heaven. Well, I think that ship sailed a long time ago. And it doesn't matter what faith you practice, what political party you belong to, any of those other things. This is one's most intimate, personal, and final decision they can make about their own lives. And to have someone else say, oh, no, that's we're taking that away from you. I cannot tolerate that. And I will do whatever it takes, even if I have to leave the state and my home and where I'm comfortable and where I want to be to make that happen. My death will come. My death will come maybe when I choose to take the medications for medical aid in dying, or it may come because my cancer will get the better of me and I'll, I'll be okay up until the end. I don't have the answers, but you don't either. And you shouldn't have a right to have an answer for me. I really don't care what anybody else thinks. I only care what my family thinks, what my two adult children, I have a 46-year-old daughter and a 44-year-old son, and they understand that mom is right now, she's doing good. And when that no longer is possible, she's going to go out the way mom wants to go out. They've known me for a long time. And don't dare argue with me. <laughs> that was Linda Shannon Bluestein. We recorded this conversation in May of 2022. When we get back. Plus the wind phone project. Is there life after death? My question to you, is there life after birth? And what kind of a life has there been? And remembrances from her son. It is a means by which to have the conversations you didn't get to have and know that the wind will carry them to the source that needs to receive them. 
and remembrances from her son and husband. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're remembering Linda Shannon Bluestein. After becoming terminally ill with cancer, she traveled with her family from her home in Bridgeport, Connecticut, to Concord, Vermont, where she died on January 4, 2024. She used the state's 10-year-old medical aid and dying law after successfully suing the state to permanently drop its residency requirement. Later, you'll hear reflections from her husband, Paul, and her son, Jacob. But now, let's get back to my conversation with Linda from May of 2022. Do you believe in an afterlife? Hmm. Um... Yeah, I think I'm going to be part of the soil that's going to be recreated, you know, when I have my green burial and and I become good worm food. And uh, yes, life will go on and I'll never be truly gone until the last person who's there to remember me or who have read something I've written is gone. So I, I will continue on because of how I have impacted both in personal ways, individually, and in the writing that I do and other things that I've done, I'll live on. Is there life after death? My question to you, is there life after birth? And what kind of a life has there been? And when there's a good life after birth, that's the religious question to me. Well, I've asked everything I planned on, amazingly, because um, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you put on the table? I, I can't emphasize enough that I don't want this for everybody. I want access to everyone for those who choose to have this as an option in the same way that I choose to keep a bottle of morphine in my safe here at home that was prescribed for me when I had my big surgery. I didn't need it at the time, but I said, when I need that, it's a comfort to know I have pain relief. Am I gonna drink it tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but it's a comfort. And so is medical aid in dying. 
having the full range of care that physicians can offer. And that includes extending my life, operating on me, giving me drugs. It also includes allowing me to say, when I've had enough, I can go to sleep and not wake up. When it gets to that point for me, why should I live another day? For me, it's not a religious question. It's a moral question of doing the right thing by those who love me and by loving myself. That's the moral issue. Well, Linda Bluestein, thank you so much for talking with me. Kayone, thank you also for inviting me to your program. On top of living with terminal cancer and her medical aid and dying activism, Linda and her son Jacob began an initiative to install wind phones across Connecticut. Connecticut Public's Deputy Director of Storytelling, Meg Dalton, recorded this piece back in early October of 2023. An old cream-colored rotary phone sits in a grove of trees just outside a historic church. A crowd surrounds the phone, and Kate Bagnati steps toward it, picks up the receiver, and dials a number. Hey, Mama. I miss you. And I know, I know you're around. But this is a pretty cool way to talk. Bagnati's mom, Grace, died about a year ago. The phone she's using isn't connected to a telephone line. It's called a wind phone. Reverend Deborah Runlet is the pastor of Ridgebury Congregational Church in Ridgefield. Her church's wind phone is the first in Fairfield County and one of three in Connecticut. It is a means by which to have the conversations you didn't get to have, the good, the bad, the ugly, and know that the wind will carry them to the source that needs to receive them. Richfield's wind phone is attached to a wooden post with a little roof at the end of a gravel path. There's a bench next to it and a plaque above it. Linda Shannon Bluestein reads the inscription. This phone will never ring. It's connected by love to nowhere and everywhere. It's for those who have an empty place in their heart left by a loved one. Say hello. Say goodbye. Talk of the past, the present, the future. The wind phone will carry a message. Bluestein and her son Jacob Shannon are the brains behind the Ridgefield wind phone. They approach Reverend Runlet about bringing the phone to her church. Bluestein has terminal cancer and is in hospice care. Earlier this year, she made national headlines after successfully suing the state of Vermont to drop its residency requirement for medical aid in dying. She wants the wind phone to be a space for normalizing grief. I don't think that when my body dies, that's the end of me. I think there's so much more. And I want them to know that we're still connected by love. And I, I saw having a wind phone here as a place where my family and friends could go and, and keep me alive. More than 150 wind phones have popped up across the country in recent years. That's according to mywindphone.com a website that locates and lists wind phones. Amy Dawson created the website a year and a half ago to honor her daughter, Emily, who died in 2020. Grief gets swept under the carpet. People get three bereavement days if they lose their spouse or their, you know, their family member, their child. Like, are you kidding? And you're supposed to move on. And you don't move on, you move forward. Dawson was inspired by the first ever wind phone. Bluestein was too. That phone was created in 2010 
more than 6,000 miles away in Itsuchi, Japan. Bluestein says a garden designer, Itaru Sasaki, was mourning the loss of his cousin. He found an old phone, and he, he built a little, in his garden, he built a little phone booth, and he would dial up his cousin and say, oh, this is doing well this year, the kale is wonderful, and, and, just, and he said it really helped him. A year later, an earthquake and tsunami devastated the region. Sasaki opened his wind phone to the public, and it became a place of solace for thousands of visitors. That's what Bluestein hopes to do here in Connecticut. In her dining room, she has a collection of rotary phones in different colors, all waiting for a home. I don't have a lot of time left, but I have a lot of ideas uh, about where I would like wind phones to be around uh, Fairfield County. Bluestein thinks of these wind phones as her legacy, something tangible her friends, family, and even strangers can use to stay connected to those they've lost. Meg Dalton, Connecticut Public Radio. Between when the story aired and her death on January 4th, Linda was able to install more wind phones around the state. We'll have a link to her project at ctpublic.org audacious. Five days after Linda died in Concord, I connected with her husband, Dr. Paul Bluestein, and her son, Jacob Shannon. From the limited time I spent getting to know Linda, it was very clear to me that she was probably the same Linda, no matter who she was speaking to. But I asked Jacob, what was she like as his mom? Her, you know, either consciously or let's admit it, it was consciously training me for leadership. And not just to be a leader, but it's something that I do with my own children. And, and it's something that's that was vitally important to her. Um, and, and that's um, helping other people as a leader, you know, incorporating her compassion, um, her vision for the future and into, you know, my life lessons every day. Paul, what about you as her husband? Maybe you saw a little different side of her than... The rest of us, what did we miss? As you say, Linda was the same person consistently. Linda didn't change the things that she said or the way she behaved, depending on who the audience was. There, there wasn't much that she held in private other than her love of practical jokes to play on me. <laughs> okay, can you give me an example, please? What did she do? The one that I liked best because it really got me was we had gone out and um, I was driving the car. And when we got home, I got out of the car and I locked the doors with the key fob and started to walk away. And I heard the doors unlock. And I thought, well, that's peculiar. And I locked them again with the key fob. And a second later, they unlocked again. And I said, Linda, there's something wrong with the car. I, I have to, I, I think I have to take it in. There must be something wrong with the electrical system. And she said, well, what do you think it is? I said, look, look, I locked the door and I locked the door. And I said, watch. And the door lock opened again. And I said, see? And then she held up her key fob, <laughs> which she had hidden behind her back and, and locked the doors. <laughs> and she said, oh, it must be this. <laughs> So not only did you have a beautiful wife, you had a playmate. I did. Linda Linda had made a promise to me 40 years ago that she would make me laugh every day 
regardless of how bad things got, at least once a day. And you know what? She kept that promise literally up until and including the day that she passed. I would like to hear about when uh, when she knew it was time to go up to Vermont. She knew that, that the progress of her disease was going to be not a slow downhill descent, but one where she was going to be well and pretty well and pretty well and pretty well and then go over the cliff, what she called Niagara Falls. And she knew that that her deterioration would come unexpectedly and then progress pretty rapidly. And it did. That when that started to happen, I think that she realized that time was running out on her and that the window of opportunity to go to Vermont and to have the kind of death that she wanted to have, have that kind of agency was closing. And I think that she reached a point where she hadn't been able to tolerate solid food for two months. And she now could barely walk because she had so much edema in her legs and her GI tract wasn't really working well. She was having a lot of trouble breathing um, because her abdomen was so swollen. And I think that she realized both that the window was closing and also that she was losing all of the independence that she valued so much. And I think just decided she didn't want to go on. One of the things she said very commonly in that last month was, um, from the shoulders up, I'm perfectly well. Um, and she was. She said, if only I could unzip my body, which is trying to kill me, and step out of it, everything would be fine. What was it like leaving your home in Bridgeport for her? What was it like for her? I think that she really regretted having to do that. It would have been her preference to stay here. The idea of having to be as sick as she was and complicate her last days with with driving all the way to Vermont to a house that was strange to her, not surrounded by all the things that she knew and loved, was not abhorrent to her, but a regret that she had. It's shameful that Connecticut has passed no law that allows someone to stay here and access medical aid in dying and literally forces them to go to another state. That's just shameful. Um, if anybody thinks that, that going to another state, I had thought that when the lawsuit against Vermont had succeeded, I thought now everything was going to get easier. It didn't. Um, if anybody thinks that, that this now becomes an easy thing to accomplish, um, they're going to be badly mistaken. Um, it took all the effort that Jacob could make and that I could make and that Linda could make to have this happen. That was Linda's husband, Paul Bluestein, and her son, Jacob Shannon. After the break, 
Jacob, and Paul on using the wind phone to talk with Linda after her death for the first time. It actually works. There's something about it. I mean, I felt better talking to her. There's something living about this. There's something that's alive. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. After Vermont dropped its residency requirement for medical aid and dying, it wasn't clear yet when would be the right time for Linda Shannon Bluestein to make the trip. She and her family had connected with a Vermont resident named Bill, who for years now has dedicated his life to helping people in the process of medical aid and dying. I connected with Linda's son, Jacob Shannon, and her husband, Paul Bluestein, five days after Linda's death to hear their reflections. How do you put words to what it was like in her final days? What was it like? The the drive, um, she was very weak and not not well. Um, We had to stop several times on the way for her to throw up, primarily because of the motion of the car. Again, just cruel. I was angry at the state of Connecticut for making her go through this. The experience altogether, once we were there and um, got her out of the car and got her into bed, was like a weight being lifted from everyone's shoulders. Um, The anxiety about, could we get there? Um, And would we have a place to go? Um, And would Linda be able to, to, to tolerate the medication? All faded away. And um, next morning, we got up around 6.30. Bill came into the room. Linda sat up in bed, bright eyes, strong voice, and said, well, Bill, what's the plan for today? He said, well, your children and grandchildren who are staying in a hotel are going to come, and um, you can spend time and say goodbye to them. Um, at 10 o'clock, you said you wanted to take your pre-medication, and then you know we have to wait a half an hour at least until um, you take your cocktail, and we'll do that at 10.30. And he said, and then we'll just wait until you're gone. And he said, but you have to understand, you're you're at the, the uh, controls of the plane mail. You can take off whenever you would like, um, sooner, later, today, tomorrow. You choose. And she she looked him right in the eye and pumped her fist in the air like that and said, now. <laughs> How did you react to that? I, I reacted the same way he did, except he said at first, he said, now? <laughs> Me too. I said, like, now? And she said, which word didn't you understand? Because there was only one of them. And uh, he said, well, your children aren't aren't here yet. He said, shouldn't we at least wait? And she said, duh. (laughs) And so Amy and Jacob and the grandchildren arrived, and she spent some time uh, with them. And then Bill said, I'm going to give her her pre-medication now. And I think that all of you except Paul should 
leave. He said, there's going to be a half an hour between the pre-medication and the cocktail. He said, Linda will be drowsy and resting, but not unconscious. She'll be able to talk. And I think the two of them need that half hour just together in private alone. And um, everyone went and gathered in his living room. And the snow started to fall. Within a minute, two, after she took her pre-medication, and we could look out the window. And it was like a postcard of New England. And we we just talked about how good a life we had had together. And then Linda got tired and I just held her hand and she watched the snow come down, me too. Um, and um, I don't think that we had the need to say a great deal. And um, the half hour went by and it was, it was lovely. Um, not a hospital, not surrounded by nurses and doctors, no beeping machines. It was just quiet, peaceful. And Linda was so relaxed. And then Bill came back and, and said, um, it was time to give her cocktail. And that, that once she took it, that, that, um, that everyone could come back in. And he said, but, but I needed, he needed my help to, um, just sit her up and, uh, she had to take the cocktail by herself. Um, I can't give it to her. He couldn't give it to her. She had to, she had to take this on her own. So he mixed it up. And as he was mixing it, the, the last thing she said to me was, I'm so happy that I don't have to do this anymore. And um, she took the cocktail and Everybody came back, and within, I don't know, three minutes, she was unconscious. No pain, no struggle. And 25 minutes later, she was gone. Thank you. Um, Jacob, I'd like to hear what this was like for you. The important piece to me began in May of 22 with your interview with mom. She pretty in detail described what she wanted her, her, her death to look like. It was a little frustrating that driving in Denver, Colorado and listening to this on the news, I didn't get a little heads up about what my children and I were about to listen to on NPR, but it was very touching um, to me. It was, I was happy and I was grateful because we knew what she wanted. Getting a clear map and understanding what someone wants is always the best way to give it to them. 
a big part of this for me is being the, the father of twin teenagers um, with developmental delays. I was trying to be present in the moment, not with just my mom, but with my children and what their needs were too. They both were awesome. You know, after mom said goodbye to them, we all kind of were around and thinking back to your interview, it's exactly as she described it. You know, the only thing um, that was missing was it wasn't in her home. In terms of grief, um, how do you think you would be dealing with your grief differently if it wasn't for her wisdom? Brenda and I talked about our deaths for 30 years. So to the extent possible, I was prepared intellectually for her death. The thing that I that I know now is no matter how much you're prepared intellectually in your head for this, that the emotional part is like getting hit by a baseball bat. I'm, I'm living in an in-between. Um, I'm so sad. Linda was just my best friend ever. I'm, I'm so at sea. One minute I'll be fine and laughing and telling stories about Linda, and then I'll literally turn a corner in a room and see something that reminds me of a time or a place and just I I can't breathe. Um, I'm sure this is going to go on for a while, but it's it's not all bad. I feared it would be. I feared that, that my days would just be black from one end to the other. And they're they're not. I'm so grateful to Jacob for being here. Um, I think that it, for me to have had to come back from Vermont to a totally empty and silent house would have been more than I could bear. Um, so I, I think that this was made a lot easier for me by having family around me. We all came home. I said um, to Jacob, I said, Let's go talk to Linda on the wind phone in Ridgebury. So we all got in the car and drove to Ridgebury. And I talked to her for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes on the phone and told her that I made the bed, which I promised to do. <laughs> um, that, that I had found one of the one of the notes that she had left for me to find in the, the days, weeks, months, and perhaps I fear years to come. <laughs> I found one of those in the box of Honey Nut Cheerios <laughs> hidden away there. <laughs> yes, Linda was very funny. <laughs> and um, I didn't know until that moment. Again, it's one thing to know in your head that the wind phone sounds like a great idea and, and it sounds like you know it's it'll be a wonderful thing i didn't know until that moment that it actually works there's something about it i mean i felt 
better talking to her. The grief lifted when I was doing that. I can't explain it. It it sounds stupid, um, but it's not. So uh, I'm I'm glad that Jacob is carrying this project on because it's a way of dealing with grief that I don't think that I would want to do without. Jacob, you want to add to that at all? Yeah, we uh, when when I uh, used it after Paul and and called mom, I, I it was too much for me to to say much more than I'm trying because <laughs> that was a pretty intense moment to pick up something I built for her, you know, to use for grief. And then yesterday we went to to the Greenfield Hills Congregational Church because I I hadn't seen the site where there's going to be a wind phone and I wanted to see it and it's beautiful. Jacob does such good work. Um, the, I've seen the design for it and um, it's a wonderful tribute, but it's it's more than just a tribute. There's There's something living about this. There's something that's alive. I know that in my experiences of grief, talking about it has been really helpful. And there are times where talking about it makes it worse. And sometimes I don't know until I've opened my mouth that it's just going to make it worse. Um, Why do you talk about it? What does it do for you to invite me into your life, to invite documentary crews? What does it do for you? Talking about them has always been one of my favorite things. (laughs) The the thing that, that, that I fear is not remembering her because it might cause me pain. The thing I fear is forgetting her. I fear that that her voice, which I can hear in my ear now, and I'm afraid that over time that voice may fade. And I don't want it to. And so this is a way of trying to hold on to that. Um, I want people to know what she was like because she was remarkable. I want people to understand from a political perspective that this is the last choice they're going to make in their lives. This is going to be it. Um, Their last chance to decide who they are, how they've lived, and how they want to die, and to give that up, to have that taken away from them. People should be abhorrent. And I want them to understand what's at stake before it's too late for them to realize that they've taken a remarkable opportunity and not taken advantage of it. So there's there's a societal aspect to this, but that's not really why I do it. I do it for me. What about you, Jacob? What does all this do for you? It helps me to help others through advocacy. And then with the continuing of the wind phone, you know, just another branch of, of mom's, you know, compassion for, for other people and her, her undying need to just help and to know that I'm furthering both of those things makes me feel good. You know, I, I know that's the best way I can honor her memory and all the things that she's ever done for me. Jacob. How do you hope Linda will be remembered? I would want my mom to be remembered as a woman of consequence. 
who did everything she could to help other people and put every single ounce of energy into it and fought. Paul, how about you? There aren't many people who have had the opportunity to live a life that really mattered. Linda did. Instead of being cremated, if there had been a stone that, that I would have summarized her life in a single sentence, it would have been hard, but the sentence would have been, she lived a life that mattered. The phrase that one of her best and oldest friends wrote to me, she said that, that she was going to miss Linda's commitment, her friendship, her warmth, her wit, and her righteous Irish outrage. I had never heard that phrase before, but I thought that that was exactly right. Righteous Irish outrage. I see things that are wrong, and I complain about them. Linda saw things that were wrong and said, I have to do something about this. Well, Jacob, Shannon, and Paul Bluestein, I'm so sorry for your loss, and thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. This is a blessing. Yes, thank you, Kylan, for you know having this conversation and getting the word out there. We appreciate you. Audacious is always so lovingly produced by Jessica Severin Di Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can see photos of our guests today and hear all of our shows at ctpublic.org slash audacious. You'll also find the episode about medical aid and dying that first connected us with Linda in May of 2022. Please stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf, and you can always send me an email, audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>